to the Backyard Professor Live. Happy Easter, everybody. I hope you've had a wonderful, restful, enjoyable Sabbath rest day and joy and ululation like the ancient Egyptians used to have, which I'm going to show you tonight through the Easter through the eyes of the Egyptians and how they celebrated this idea. I seriously doubt that they celebrated on a specific day like today, but you never know. I hope tonight's inspiring and interesting. I personally really enjoy this subject and I'm hoping you will. So let's get this show on the road and get started on Celebrating Easter from the Ancient Egyptian Point of View. So here we are, celebrating Easter together. It looks like we've got Dan Vogel in the house. Good to see you, Dan. Paul Osborne, good to see you. Tim Rathbone, Doug Vincent, Don Smith, Issa Morris, Mark Crispin. Yeah, baby. I don't know where we ever started that tradition, but it's good. I am going to get a T-shirt made with that, I promise. I've been putting it off. Moksha Raver, good to see you, my good friend. Looks like a lot of people are here. Booker Preston, good to see you. Who else have I loudmouthly proclaimed is awesome besides all of you guys? Noel Hausler. Hey, I'm going to open with you, my good friend. Yes. Noel Hausler, looking forward to this video. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's a good point. I'll put that up there for us to ponder. Uh, tonight, I want to do something what I consider to be really kind of uh, fun and interesting. Hey, Newton Lemnos, or Lemos, sorry. Don't put the N in Lemos. I'm just saying. Happy Easter to all of you. I, uh, I, I have to confess that I am very, very, very excited what I am seeing occur right now right now in the world and i i just did not expect this at all um the apologists are updating the book of abraham materials no joke so what i'm going to do and i've i've been even from behind the scenes there are wonderful people who are giving me information that i was not aware of so thank you to all of you for doing that 
But uh, yeah, I am going to completely upgrade all of my Book of Abraham materials, and I'm going to bring it up to snuff with the new attempts of the Mormon scholarship and the Mormon apologetic materials to, and yes, I do distinguish the two, to try to keep the Book of Abraham relevant, and I don't see how they can do it, but I just received a boatload of information, but I think through time I'll, I'll upgrade all this stuff. So in the process of at least trying to, you know, get a general gist, what, what are the apologists doing uh, trying to resurrect, no pun intended, this dead horse with Egyptology? And that dawned on me, hey, Easter's coming up. And the ancient Egyptians really do have a spectacular Easter message. And so I've been kind of rummaging through my old stuff. And uh, I, I found some information. I'm going to give you some brand new Egyptological information. Thank you, Noel Hausler, for getting me in touch with Thomas Meckes, who is a superb Egyptian scholar, uh, Egyptologist. And I am going to utilize some of his materials tonight. And uh, so I'm very excited. Let me get started. Now that I've said hi to you. Hey, Corey Larson. Good to see you, my friend. Everybody's welcome here. Everybody say hi to everybody and throw Easter eggs at each other. We'll have an Easter egg fight. Woohoo. Yeah, green eggs and Abraham. It's what I saw Moksha put up. <laughs> that is funnily irreverent. <laughs> so in the latest news, now this is from my attending dear friend Noel Hausler. He he and I keep touch with uh, Dr. Meckes, and Hausler asked him, uh, did the Egyptians believe in a resurrection? <clears throat> if you were at the lower end of society, what was your post-death destiny? Now, that's a good question. <clears throat> that is really a good question. I like how Noel asked that, and I love how uh, I love how Dr. Meckes answers it. He says, well, in Egyptology, we don't use the term resurrection. Rather, we use revivication or rebirth. And, and rebirth is the one I see the most of. So I, I can go with that. Poor people who could not afford a rich funerary were interred in cemeteries or in collective funerary chambers next to one of the noble ones. <clears throat> And they were thus placed on the sacred land. I've seen several types of burials. Dr. Mecca says almost all burials contain some types of amulets, which were cheap and available for every people of the society. Just a simple scarab amulet placed on or above the heart, for example, was responsible for that in front of Osiris and the court of judges in the other world. And this helped make the hearts the deceased heart to neglect all sins that one may have committed in the earthly life, and thus they could enter to the nether world. And this was just from the several funerary practices that poor Egyptians could use to their underworldly survival. And I will explain why they have this type of thinking, because this is not what we in the West think much. Now, the most important concept 
is this next sentence. And this is what caused me to say, oh, hey, I'd like to do a, uh, I'd like to have a discussion on that. And and tonight I can, I, I can introduce the subject. I'll put it that way. But I will have many more videos on all kinds of papyrological materials and themes that are coming out. Thank you for, to the terrific work of the Egyptologists. The general theory for destiny of the deceased was that the deceased assimilated to the sun god. And there's the key. Okay. So each day the deceased could come up from the underworld as Ray, the great sun god in the Egyptian pantheon, and then return there at every sunset. The idea was a cyclical rebirth and death. And so that was a brief uh, discussion between two dear friends of mine. And so, oh, well, thank you, Barnaby Garcia Tumanon. I hope I haven't massacred your name, good friend. Watching you from the Philippines, I'm honored. Thank you very much. Ah, okay. Let me grab a quick swig. I'm going to just take my time and do this right. Hopefully I won't mess up the slides. If I do, apologies in advance. I don't think I will, though. I've got this pretty down pat. Now, my dear friend, Thomas Meckes, and I do count him as a dear friend. He's always so cheerful and helpful to me. Uh, I just, I love this man. I love Noel Hausler for getting me in touch with him. I love keeping in touch with Noel Hauser and Dan Vogel and Doug Vincent. All of you I've had to keep in touch with. This particular, the Book of the Dead, Syat through Ptolemaic Periods, essays on books of the dead and related topics. It's edited by several dozen people, it looks like, several people. And this is a 2019 production. It's in the SP. BD studies for Egyptology. It's a very, very good and important uh, source. I'm going to buy the book. Uh, Dr. Meckes and uh, Noel got me access to this particular article of Dr. Meckes's, where he's talking about, he's giving some reflections on some of the funerary equipment and I hope I pronounced this gentleman's name right, although he has been dead for centuries, of Piuhor, P-A-I-U-H-O-R, Piuhor. Uh, it looks very Book of Mormonish. If Nibley were alive, he would jump on this. He would say, hey, see, the Egyptians have Book of Mormon names, and Reformed Egyptian is thus confirmed. And I'll even put it up there for you. You can see the. There's the, oh, I'm trying to do this backwards. P-A-I-U-H-O-R. I mean, is that Pahoran or Korahor or whatever, you know, the Egyptian twist? Dan Vogel is going to rejoin the church because of this. I'm quite sure. The connection is astonishing. However, the hypocephalus from this gentleman really is very interesting. And the way that, and of course, all he's doing is he can only give you a basic approach to this, right? And I see I made Doug Vincent laugh. Thank goodness. Whew. Don't stone me for being, uh, you know, anti-Egyptological anti Mormon. But so what I want to do first is let, let's take a look at 
this idea. Now, what I've done is this is the this is the Joseph Smith hypocephalus here on the uh, left, the the black and white, and then the this is the a Turin hypocephalus on the right. And and what he's done is the compartments. You can see the hypocephali as a general rule are put into different compartments. Some of them go all the way across horizontally like this particular one does. You can see the Joseph Smith one has actually a central box and then there's a smaller box directly on top of that so that each of the horizontal areas are, are split into three sections. That's also part of uh, Egyptian hypocephali. And so, but he wants us to be aware of the idea of the various registers and the themes with the registers that this is so interesting. <laughs> there you go, Moksha. <laughs> that is a very fine point right there. So, so this idea of the various compartments, what, what can we learn from the various compartments? Let's take a look at these. Um, and I'm going to take your comment off because I want to see this. <clears throat> so what I've done here is I've just kind of highlighted this central panel in a light pink. I tried to make it red and it ended up looking pink. It's okay. Because I want to talk about, I want to share what uh, Dr. Mecca says about that particular figure. What I've done on the left-hand side is the Joseph Smith. And I'm just putting that in for comparison. Um, it really is a genuine hypocephalus. So there's no question about that. And then on the right is this Turin. And then uh, underneath on the right is the where I've pinked it all the way across, it's enlarged. And then over on, on the one under the Joseph Smith, I flipped it right side up so that we can see that four-headed ram figure with the sun disc on his head and he's being adored by baboons. No, this is not Daniel C. Peterson and the Mopologists. This is a much more exalted theme than that. Although the Apologists do act like baboons. There's no question about that sometimes. So, so in this register, the four-headed ram is squatted. He's mummy-formed deity. He's adored by four baboons on the right, four baboons on the left. <coughs> now, sorry. Some hypocephali will have three, some will have two, some will have one, some will have none. Baboons, there's no real canon of number here. This particular one, see the Joseph Smith only has one on each side, but that's okay. Interestingly too, his baboons have the, the moon disc on their heads, and I will get into that tonight. I will describe the significance of the moon disc. The other ones in the Turin do not. But the ram-headed deity does. So, I mean, we can expect various different types of uh, variations without question. So, uh, the scene clearly represents the Theban theology. Now, what this means is Ammon worshipped by the baboons, the Ogdawad, at the mound of Jimi. He is a clear manifestation of the underworld 
and the celestial spheres. So this is what this central figure, that's why I enlarged it to put it under the Joseph Smith hypocephalus here. He does uh, manifest the symbolic aspect, and, and we'll get into that because there's a reason why they put him like this in a four-headed ram, which is never seen in nature. So this is not as... Uh, not an exact replica of anything in nature that's not meant to be. So we're talking about the underworld and the celestial spheres. The four rams heads of the deity, what they, I, the idea here is they express the universal nature of atom over the physical world. And the number four, of course, is always associated with the four elements, with the four cardinal points, the four corners, etc. While the figure can be explained as a variation on the life-giving, notice this emphasis here, it's a variation on the life-giving cosmic Ammon shoe form as well, who owns the sky, he also owns the earth and the air inside them. So this is a pretty, the theory here is it's a pretty all-conclusive uh, approach, uh, all-conclusive symbolism. This cosmic nature of the deity is expressed by the form of the Mendesian ram, the ram from Mendes, and I'll explain that here in a little while as well. They have reasons from Egypt of why they chose such fascinating, weird, and interesting, and wildly improbable symbols to discuss their theological aspirations. And there is a real interesting reason why they did what they did. And this is what makes it so much fun. It's definitely a different culture, different time, different place, but amazingly enough, a very similar ideology to so many other religions. It's, just, it's fascinating. So this idea of the unity of the Ba of Ray. Now, the Ba, just to keep this simple, I'm not going to get into all the nitty-gritty of the Egyptologist stuff. I will in another video. The Ba is the spirit. Let, let, let's just keep it simple for now. That's all we need to know for now. That's good enough. So it's talking about the ram signifies the unity of the spirit of Ray. Now, Ray is the sun god, so his symbol is light, right? His attribute is light. That makes perfect sense, right? He is the Ba of Shu, the Shu feather. Now, a feather signifies the air. So we've got the Ba of Ray, the light, the Ba of Shu, the air, the Ba of Geb, which is the earth, and the Ba of Osiris, which is, what fourth element have I missed? Water. So this, this is how the all-conclusive, all-encompassing symbolism works in just such a small, compact, and very meaningful, beautiful way in these hypocephali. So that's what he's trying to get us to understand, at least on a superficial introductory basis, we can get the idea here. Now, the second register, and I have highlighted them in the pink. I put the Turin on the far left, the Joseph Smith in the middle, and then underneath each one of them, I've enlarged the figure that I put in the pink, and uh, and then I've added two other from two different uh, 
hypocephali, other figures of this of this uh, tall figure holding the Wepawawa staff. Now, this clearly refers to the, now get this, this is what the Egyptologists are saying now. This is the daytime hours of the sun cycle. Now, why is that? Because you can see these hypocephalus, and both of these uh, work pretty good, actually. the uh, You can see right there in the middle in that uh, the colored one on the left, it's split, and the bottom half's upside down, <laughs> right? So, and then the top, the top two registers are right side up. So, if you wanted to flip that around 180 degrees, you'd then be looking at the upside down portion, right side up, right? Well, and you can see the same thing more or less. Pretty much most hypocephali do this. Uh, but the Joseph Smith is the same way. Underneath that uh, double-headed figure in the middle with the baboons with the oh the uh, moon disks on their head. Underneath, everything else is upside down, right? Well, this is because the symbolism within the circle is just so spectacular. Uh, the upside-down stuff is considered the night. And the right-side-up stuff is considered the daytime of the sun and each of the different figures yeah and they have you know they got birds they've got animals they got real weird combinations of animals funny looking guys etc long boats etc they're symbolizing this whole concept is to deal with the sun the s-u-n the God of our world. And you know, when you really <laughs> you take the practical look at this, no joke, the sun. Without it, there is no life of any kind. Plant, animal, mineral, inorganic, organic, whatever you want to call it, without the sun, this, this earth just doesn't exist with life. So that is the ultimate deity. Well, <clears throat> this is the most compact way to describe the sun's relationship to those four elements. That's why you've got the earth, air, wind, and fire. Good rock group, too. Earth, wind, and fire, anyway. And that's what this deity is, is uh, doing here. So we are dealing with the daytime hours of the sun cycle. The principal figure is the two-headed deity holding a standard, the Wepwawet. On each side, a bark is depicted. Now, I don't have that here just yet. I'll show you these in a little bit. So on the left-hand side of the bark, <clears throat> on the left-hand side on your screen, you see that little uh, falcon with his wings extended. Joseph Smith incorrectly signified that was the ship of the thousand, and it's just not, but I will describe what it is to you tonight. And on the other side is the adoring goddesses. Now, not on the Joseph Smith here again, um, on the on the other side, and I will get to the details of these too. Uh, in just a few minutes, the adoring goddesses, Joseph Smith took his boat up there in the right-hand corner uh, with that guy with the 
sun disc on his head in the boat. Yeah, Joseph Smith put the boat. He took that from one of the uh, papyri scraps that he had in 1835 because when he had this hypocephalus, it wasn't complete. And so he just kind of threw that in there. It's it's technically, I mean, he did get the idea of the boat up there, but that's not very, very precious few other hypocephali. In fact, none that I've seen have that figure they instead are like this other Turin hypocephalus. So, yeah, the falcon horse, I will get to that, Newton. Good question. On each side of the debark is depicted the adoring goddesses, Isis and Nephthys. They give adoration to a lying scarab, and I will do a close-up about above the cabin in the midst of the bark in the right one, and Achimbird is depicted with the outstretched wings. It holds a serpent in its feet. Above the bird is an inscription, and this inscription reads, uh, here it is. Here's this bird with the wings. Down below each one of the uh, full hypocephala, I did a close-up. Uh, this inscription uh, above that bird in the uh, Turin, the one on the left, says, Babao, respectful, respectful, Lord of fear among the gods. And the idea here is, Osiris, now the god Osiris as far back as the pyramid texts, and he's virtually ubiquitous in the ancient Egyptian religion. There's no question about that. He appears in Heliopolis. He's identified from the very beginning with the phoenix, the phoenix bird, which renews itself in the Ben-Ben temple. And when we begin to look at the inscription on the rim, we'll see this. Uh, from the 27th dynasty onward, he assimilates more and more frequently to aspects of Atom and becoming the master of the great temple. Several sources concern the tomb of Osiris in Heliopolis. Heliopolis is the famous city of the sun. That's where the great big obelisks were held at one time until the, the land of Egypt got raped by all the Europeans and American archaeologists couple centuries ago, it's certain that Osiris had his own cult in Heliopolis. This is the solarization of Osiris. And when we bring in the context of the Book of the Dead, chapter 162, which is the chapter that deals with these strange-looking things we call hypocephalus. Hypo is under in Greek. Cephalus is the head. They put it under the head of the mummy. And I'll explain why here in a little bit also there. It's not what exactly what you have been told. So this was kind of fun and new to me. I enjoyed this very much. So the solarization of Osiris. We read an invocation to the cow goddess or by the cow goddess to Ammon. And it says, he is your Ba. Now remember, Ba is spirit. So he is your Ba. Do not fail to know him. Now they are talking to the mummy. This inscription, this invocation is talking to the mummy who is in the company, in the heavenly company of Osiris in the tomb. But the heavenly company is the underworld. And that's kind of interesting, isn't it? You go, wait a minute. I thought heaven was up. Yeah, well, it is. 
to some degree. But when I say heavenly, I mean not earthly. Yes, his corpse is in the ground. It's in the tomb. That's true. But this is a very interesting thought here. Come to Osiris N. May you provide heat under his head. He is the great corpse that rests in Heliopolis. Osiris is the great corpse that resides in Heliopolis. And they want the deceased who is connected by putting this hypocephalus under his head. They want the deceased to also be connected to Osiris. When you're dead, you go to the underworld. That, that's just basic, okay? So <clears throat> this is the direction that we're going. Now, the interpretation of this scene is very interesting. <clears throat> Here we go. I told you I was gonna told you I was gonna show you. Now, this is the bar all the way across. I've got the Joseph Smith in the center, the Turin to the left, and then I've got that close-up of the other boat. Showed you the boat with the hawk and the outspread wings. Now on the other side is these two people who are <clears throat> adoring this scarab. Now this is real interesting. Because on the viewer's right side, a bark can be seen. These two figures represent the goddesses Isis and Nephthys. They're adoring a laying down scarab depicted above the cabin cabins on the boat it's just a little small little cabin there and the scene unites the two panels found in earlier discs the idea of the united image is about guess what the renewal of the sun god now this is really key to grasping the whole idea of the ancient Egyptian ideology, if you will, the theology, whatever you want to call it, religion, uh, whatever. They're unite these various symbols that you can see down there in the, the big pink box there on the lower, the, the outspread hawk wing on that boat. Then you've got the guy holding the Wepwawa scepter, the jackal scepter, with his feathers going way up, even breaking through that rim, which is kind of important, actually. And then on the other side, the right-hand side, which I've enlarged, you have these two ladies who are adoring this scarab above the cabin. This whole thing combined is concerning the renewal of the sun god. So this is important because this scarab, now this scarab they call Keper, Kepri, Keperu, whatever. It's, it's about renewal, about gaining a new form. It's a rejuvenation, this principle. Uh, don't, I mean, if you want, uh, if we're going to adapt the Christian slash Mormon, whatever, if you want to say resurrection, but that's not quite it. And I'll explain why in a little bit. This is one of the fun differences with the ancient Egyptian as opposed to today. Uh, a rejuvenation is going to be better to understand this than a resurrection. And I'll explain why in just a little bit. But this is the reborn form of the sun god. And now 
I've got to go to footnote 53. The two worshiping goddesses above the mound implicitly refer to the song, to the tomb of Osiris. And the scarab above the sign certainly is an allusion to the rebirth. The renaissance of the sun on the east above the Bahu Mountains. So we're talking about the sun coming up over the horizon, which we would call a, a sunrise. That's the principle. The sunrise. Yeah. Well, the Egyptians saw that also. <laughs> no, you say. Yes, they really did. So this is kind of fun. Now, the real interesting thing is, in general, what Isis and Nephthys here on that far right, the the uh, the bigger picture, the magnified picture, they function as nurses to the reborn sun god because the reborn sun god, now he's reborn, right? What is occurring at birth? A baby shows up, right? So the sun god often in the east now, and that scarab says this is the renewed form of the sun god is, is discussed as a child. And so these two goddesses are helping the child make it. He, they are helping lift the sun up into the horizon is the symbolism here. And it is deliberately at the top curvature of the top third of the hypocephalus that does depict the early daytime of the sun, right? That's kind of interesting how they put this together in symbolic form. The, the wordplay of Kepri is the word dua, and it means morning. And it's expressed by the scene because it represents an icon of the east. Yes. So now I want to go back to slide three here because we've got another interesting thing. This figure of the multi-headed God in the middle here that I've, I've put for those of you who are new here or just got here, those two pink boxes. The middle one is the Joseph Smith hypocephalus in the book Abraham. This other far one to the right, to your right with the other pink box. Down below him is the magnified image. Then I've got two others to compare. So this figure represents Ammon, <clears throat> uh, two tall plumes, and the Urea. Originally, there were two gods, one behind the other, the first to look ahead, the other to look behind. So, And then the fourth and third centuries, they were united. And from that point onward, the deity is depicted as a man. This is the Janus form, uh, the Janus figure in Rome, uh, the deity looking forward in time and backward in time. Same thing in the Egyptian stuff, although the Egyptians came first. So this is expressing the mysterious being of Ammon, right? Uh, it, it's not meant to be literal. Please don't get literal on me and say, oh, look, a two-headed guy. No, that's not the idea. The legends identify the God as I am the one who knows. That's the idea here. That's why he's called the knower. I am the one who knows. And sometimes uh, he is combined with the sun God and they call him Ammon Ray. Now he can represent. Now here it is. Uh, 
he represents the sun at the zenith in the middle of the day when it's the most powerful and unstoppable God, free of movement, who in the syncretistic form with Ray, he is reborn each day in the east, and then he sets in the west, hidden in the iris protection of his pupil. He travels through the netherworld, and there he's hidden in the midst of his wedge-up eye to be reborn and to repeat this cycle together forever. So this is the idea. See, okay, this is him at the top. And notice he is at the top of the circle. He's at the highest point in the circle. And look at the Joseph Smith one, the enlarged one down there below that middle figure. Those feathers, they actually bump right up and they go right through the rim. That's deliberate. That's telling us something. This is the sun at his most powerful. He can penetrate the eternity that the rim itself symbolizes. That's the idea. And you can see the one on the Turin also. You can't see the feather go all the way through, but you can see the one on that far, far right way down there in the corner. Look at his feathers. I mean, his fourth, his two top heads almost penetrate through that. That's deliberate. They're just saying, hey, look, uh, this is a good symbolism. This is the sun that is breaking into eternity, and he's at his greatest power. And when we go to this one on the other side of this figure, we see the western horizon where he sets. And then this one on the right, the expanded portion, is the eastern horizon where he rises. So this whole upper panel is about the sun journey. You got to get that crystal clear if you're going to understand these hypocephali, right? So this is kind of cool. It's kind of fun. So the two worshiping goddesses above the mound implicitly refer to the tomb of Osiris, uh, Jot Webet, and the scarab above the Jot Webet sign certainly is an allusion to the rebirth. Okay, so, oh, let's see. Let me zip back here to this one real quick, this outspread wings one here. And then the mighty God is also described in the book of Dead 162. I'm not going to read that for you. Uh, for the interpretation of the left-hand side bark, we may rely on the two panels. The two sides of the register can be interpreted as the representation of west and east. I've said that already. I'm getting ahead of myself. The western and eastern horizons of the sky. And it is deliberately in the top part of the hypocephalus. Okay, so the hawk and the bark. And its label text has multiple meanings expressing at the same time the most powerful radiating sun form, the form of Osiris atom and that is why he is that is why this head dog the big boy is right up there in the very center oh that guy right there so okay i belabored this point off this is really critical however it's really really important to to get this uh, okay, now in register three, and this is this is fascinating too. Okay, so now we're going to go to let let me uh, 
Okay, on this one, what I've done is I've taken the strips of three different hypocephali. The middle one there is the uh, is the Joseph Smith. And the only reason I'm comparing them is because that's the one we're all familiar with, right? Um, and so you can see it. This is the one with the cow. In the Joseph Smith, that is upside down, and many, many of them are similar. You can see it on the Turin, the left. See the, the pink part going across? You go down one, two, three panels down. You're almost at the very bottom of the hypocephali. It's upside down in this picture. It represents the underworld, and it's the same with the Joseph Smith. The Joseph Smith is the third one down. So, so that is what this is, and I've turned them all right side up. So now we want to explain each one of the symbolisms and see why are all these wild-looking things together in this panel, and what is it that they're trying to say? <laughs> Hi, Patty Cake. Patty Cake asks, is that a cow or a curl? <laughs> it's a tapir. <laughs> Nobody tell Dan Peterson that, though. Don't tell John Gee either. It'll blow him away. Okay, so I've highlighted. What I'll do is I'll highlight in each yellow the section that I'm talking about. And you'll notice this one on top, there's the, uh, the scarab beetle behind those four guys, whereas in the Joseph Smith and in another one, uh, it shows the three figures. And that's what we want to talk about. Those three, the three represent representations used to be the scarab, they call Kepri, sitting mummified deity with falcon head ray, ram-headed mouse, who is Atom. Now, the relation between this last iconographic element and the trigram coming after the mouse. So see those three together is called the trigram. They are in relation to the three elements, the lotus flower, the lion, and the ram, that's what they're supposed to signify. And they are in relation with the three forms of the sun god as Kepri, which represent, and there's that beetle on that top one, see, the small yellow box. Kepri is the rising sun as Ray, the one on the zenith, and as Atom, the setting sun. So the trigram giving the name of Adam will be the secret name of Ammon. And these three figures represent, here we go again, and this is so important because it's a repetition on purpose for their theological ideology, right? So what this represents, these three figures that I put in the yellow boxes, is the cyclical movement of the sun. So while the ram-headed mouse is the symbol of the setting sun, in the constellation with the two other figures referring to the general idea of the iconography of hypocephali, that can be grouped around the idea of cyclical rebirth, and it's done in threes. Setting, rising, and up at the zenith. Yep, the cyclical rebirth. The ram-headed mouse as symbol of the sundown, which goes by the name Atum, A-T-U-M, must make us recall Book of the Dead 162. The 
He is your Ba. Do not fail to know him. Come to Osiris Inn. May you provide heat under his head. He is the great corpse that rests in Heliopolis. So if we return to the scene after the ram-headed mouse, it follows the trigram, and this is Adam, and we can join again to Bat Book of the Dead 162, where we see the cow and the cow, and that's that central figure right smack dab in the middle of your screen. That cow is the protector and the helper of the sun child at his sunset death. And what she's got around her neck, she has created an amulet, which is the hypocephalus to protect his son reposing in Heliopolis against his enemies during his journey in the netherworld. Death is not the end to the Egyptians. Uh, this upside life that we live standing on our feet, looking upward at the sky, is not the only life there is. There is also a netherworld, according to these people. And so that's really kind of interesting. Wanted to get through that. Oh, okay, so that is this part. Now let's go to the next slide. And actually, I just kept the slide, but notice, okay, here we focused on the trigram of the god, Ray, Adam, and Kepri. And now we move over to the four sons of Horus. Now, B. Matthew, in his study on the four sons of Horus, has provided an explanation of how the four spirits are an emanation of the supreme deity. Now, notice what the Egyptologists today call these, which somewhat contrasts with how Joseph Smith identified them. Happy and Duwamutef are the two of the four here, and they represent the arms. And Imseti and Kubsanuf represent the two legs. That's why there's four of them. The principle is the two arms and the two legs is the basis by which the deceased is able to move in the underworld. And this is so remarkable because our death, you know, we die and you're just dead as dirt and you're thrown into the grave, etc. To the Egyptians, that's just a transition. You still need the theme, the principle of movement, food, liquid intake, etc. We'll get, we'll, I'll touch on that here in a little bit. But here is what the pyramid text says. Now, this is interesting because Joseph Smith did not have access to this pyramid text. This is genuinely the ancient Egyptian theme. And his idea of the four sons of Horus is not technically correct. In fact, he missed this altogether. And none of the Mormon Egyptologists have approached it this way at all that I'm aware of, because, of course, they want to defend Joseph Smith. I'm not so much interested in refuting him tonight as just sharing the theological religious principle of the hypocephalus to you from the ancient Egyptian side. However, this is really interesting. Your arms, and they identify it. Your arms are happy and duamutef. When you wish to ascend to heaven, you ascend. 
your legs are imseti and kebasanuf. When you wish to descend to the inverse heaven, you descend. You notice the cyclical movement of ascension and descension. Well, how do you move? Yeah, we get in a car. I get that. Turn the key, stick it in gear, and head off to the mall, right? <laughs> but in ancient Egypt, how you moved was your arms and your legs. Of course, we still do that today, right? So this principle of movement was really important to the ancient Egyptians. So that's what I wanted to show. I thought that was really interesting. So the four sons of Horus possibly represent a manifestation of the limbs of the hidden god Ammon Atom, the combination by which he is able to move. In front of them, the cow goddess. Notice the direction that they're facing. They're all facing toward the Ikat cow, the biggest, most important icon on the whole hypocephalus. Let's take a look at the cow. So I've highlighted her here in each one of these. So, and of course, behind the cow is an anthropomorphic deity. We'll get to his head is depicted as a wedge-out eye within a circle. Let me show you this deity right here. Notice his head. It's hard. These are small. You know, it's hard to draw a really good eye in such a small circle, right? But that is a wedge-out eye, which is simply the most astonishing symbol in all of Egyptian religion. No, this is not a spaceman in a spacesuit. No, it is not an alien. I don't give a damn what the conspirators say. I don't give a fly and flip what Von Donneken dictates or whatever. They're full of it. That is not what this is. That completely misunderstands the Egyptian iconography. I just want to go on record on saying that. Okay, now let's get back to this mother cow because she is really something. Uh, the cow goddess is the mother of Ray, the sun god. So here's our heavenly mother, and she's a cow from the ancient Egyptian side. But she gives birth to the god. So she was first. Ha-ha! You won't hear Mormonism teach that theology, will you? <laughs> They're so terrified of Heavenly Mom, they don't even want you talking about her, let alone praying to her, heaven forbid. They've excommunicated people for doing something like that. I, they're ridiculous. Anyway, I, that's not what I want to talk about tonight. But here's Heavenly Mom, and she gave birth to Elohim. She is first. Very interesting. Well, the cow goddess, as the mother of the sun god, what happens is, as the sun disk, the god as the sun disk. She is the sky, the cow goddess. Represents the entire arc of the sky. Well, the sun god travels all the way through her. And he is born from the cow, right? So the head 
is substituted by the right wedge-eye, and in the hand of the anthropomorphic Yechit goddess is a lotus flower that symbolizes the promise of the rebirth of the sun day after day. Now, I want to emphasize this again sincerely. This figure here, notice he's holding out a lotus plant. And yeah, it's stylized. Sometimes it looks like a fan, whatever. The point is, the symbolism is he's holding out the lotus symbol to the goddess, and that symbolizes the promise of the rebirth of the sun every single day. And the cow, whoops, sorry, the cow actually represents the sky. The, the it, It's fascinating how this works. Let's keep going. The god behind the goddess... I'm not quite there yet, who appears by the mountain is an atom serpent. Now, this is very interesting, too. This guy here, this guy is called the atom, A-T-U-M again, atom serpent. Okay, so what's that? And uh, on the 22nd Dynasty cartonage cases, the cow represents represents the celestial cow, and she is living in the marshes, the papyrus marshes, of the primeval water. Now, the primeval water, uh, the Egyptians called the noon, that is outer space. Because the way the Egyptians thought of it is the sky is water. I mean, doesn't it rain? Yeah. Where does that come from? The sky. Obviously, the sky is water. Does it snow? Yeah, sure, it snows. Well, where does that come from? The sky, it's water. So when they talk about the primeval ocean or the primeval water, they mean the whole universe. And this is so interesting because she is the celestial cow in it. She is the power of giving life. That's this symbolism. That's really interesting. It doesn't reside with God. It resides with goddess. Very interesting here. The Egyptians have something here. So, behind the boviform goddess, the traces of a tomb can be identified, and an eye within the disc, by this time the atom serpent, is not visible. What he does is he looks out from the west. He's represented by the New Kingdom tomb facade and the mountain. The meaning may help express the celestial cow provides help to the deceased in the deceased's ascent in order to enter into the solar cycle. When you die, you're dead. You're stuck in the ground. But to the Egyptians, that's not the ground. That's the underworld. That's the netherworld. The duat. The omduat. The sun, too, joins the deceased every day out in the west when it goes below the horizon. It goes all the way across the arc of the sky during the day. And then during the night, it goes all the way through for 12 hours in the underworld, all the way through. And it comes back out up in the east, 
right? That's the solar cycle, but the deceased, us, we humans, we are not in that solar cycle when we die automatically. No, we're just simply stuck in the underworld. Kind of like Hades and the shades in the Greek Iliad and Odyssey, where they're just kind of roaming around wondering now what? Yeah, that's what we are. But there is a way to get into that cycle which represents eternal life, according to the Egyptians. This cow is what gives us that. Now, this explains the form and the theological aim of the four sons of Horus as well. These guys here with the cow, the four sons of Horus, with the bovine heavenly celestial mother cow, represents the limbs of the deceased in his descent into the underworld, and the cow here is going to help the deceased get into the cycle. Now, the wedge up eye here, and this is pictured as the full head is just a wedge up eye, which is a really interesting symbol. Someone's mentioning Persephone. T.O. Hey, T.O. Good day. Geoplanet Jane. William Charles. Mike Parker. Jeff Taylor. William Charles. I said hi, hi to William Charles. Welcome, everybody. So anyway, what happens now is the wedge out eye enclosed within the circle. This is the head. And I promise this is not an ancient astronaut. If you've ever thought about that, throw that thought out. No, that misses the whole point of the Egyptian symbolism here. What this represents is the manifestation of the sun god at night, according to Mechus's study here. Now, that's really interesting. So, the atom serpent, and that is what this figure represents, according to Mechus, he was reinterpreted and given a feminine body representing the anthropomorphic form of the cow goddess who helps her son during his descent into the underworld. So her son, which is everyone on earth because she is the celestial cow of the entire universe that gives life to the earth along with her husband or father or son. Ray, the sun god. Well, when we die and we descend, we have to move to descend, and she is helping with the movement. That's where the four sons of horse come in. Kind of interesting how it, this whole panel fits together rather nicely, even though it is completely wild and weird looking with its symbolism. <laughs> huh. The goddess received the deceased at the entrance of the underworld to secure. What's the point? Now, now we're talking about the dead. Now we're talking about us, right? We're dead. Plunk. Stuck in the ground. End of discussion. Uh-uh. No, we still got movement. The cow comes and helps. Remember, this is symbolism, you guys. Don't get too literal on us. Uh, and so now we have movement to get into the underworld the point of the cow helping the deceased now, that's all the rest of us, 
not the sun god. The sun god has his own help. But now we're talking about the deceased in the grave, who now we have gone to the netherworld. He, she secures and achieves the regeneration of the deceased. That is the point of this entire hypocephalus. It's a magnificent symbol of hope that there's more, right? So in the completeness of the whole register here, all the way across that, the whole line here, in the completeness of the register, the goddess accepts the sun god in his descent in the west. That's the point. And now this guy sitting on his throne. Now, this is kind of a funny looking symbol, isn't it? I mean, he's got a, a bird body off of his back, his arms to the square. He's holding a flail. In some cases, like in the Joseph Smith, he's at the phallic. This is symbolic of the god men. This particular figure, according to Meccas, it's a pantheistic deity with his back to the, the deity with the uh, Wedjot eye, the sun in the underworld, is what that one represents. Well, from his back, the body of a bird protrudes. He raises his hand in the gesture of men or Ammonimope. And Nekeb Kau, now that's the serpent. And, and let me highlight that real quick. This next figure, Nekeb Kau, it's not drawn real good in the Joseph Smith because they really couldn't tell what the heck it was. It's all good. We don't have to be fussy about it. Uh, it's basically a serpent who is, look, notice what he's presenting this guy seated on the throne. He's presenting him with the wedge out eye, right? So he is res wedja, he who awakes sound. Now, this is really interesting because he manifests the power which is expressed by the renewed Osiris, who again has the energy to impregnate Isis. And the whole symbolism here is giving birth to the morning sun, not the evening sun setting, but the idea of giving Osiris enough energy here which is through that wedge-out eye that this figure is presenting to this guy here, right? That wedge-out eye is very important. He represents Ammon, who has an Osiris aspect. During the decade festival, Ammon passes. Ammon passes from the east to the west. That's what this whole panel is also showing us, except this is going through the eternal universe, which is what the cow represents, right? This is just basically the sun out there in space crossing the sky. That's what this entire panel is discussing. It's showing how the deceased gets into that cycle through these incredible symbols. It's just so fascinating how they put it together. So during the Decade Festival, he passes from the east to the west to the land of the dead. But that's not the end. Then he returns from the west. 
Now, on his return, on his coming back, he takes an Osiris aspect. Not with his death, but with his revivication or resurrection, if you will, or his rebirth. This is the concept which represents, whoops, sorry, this guy as well. Or no, this guy, I apologize. The rest wedja on hypocephalus as well. Yeah. So, so we're talking about death and reviving. Death is not the final answer in this type of ideology. So, and now the next figure, let's keep, okay, now, now we get to Nekeb Kau, who is, the, I think I'm pronouncing that right, I have no idea. Grimity, nobody knows how the ancient Egyptians pronounce their stuff, I'll give it a shot. The next figure is Neheb Kau, N-E-H-E-B-K-A-U, you go right ahead and pronounce it any way you want, good luck. <laughs> So he offers, of course, and again, know that remember the figure behind the mother cow is offering the lotus plant, which is a regeneration plant, and his head is a circle with the wedged eye. Now, this snake, this nekab cow, is also presenting a wedged eye. And I know it's not drawn very good in the middle one to Joseph Smith. Don't be critical about that. It's okay. We know from other hypocephali that was definitely the wedged eye, so it's all good, right? So, and among some interpretations in the Ba theology, this is what they call the Egyptian theology, the Ba theology. It's the spirit the Ba is the spirit, the soul. Just let's keep it simple for the time being. I mean, they have cause, they have Ba's, they have Ox and Akus. Forget all that. Ba is spirit. Okay, so we have a spirit and a body. Keep it simple. This Ba theology depicted here with Nekeb Kau, however, is it represents the morning sun that has assimilated to Kepri, and that's that beetle. Now, remember, the beetle is the changing of form. Now, the sun does change form through the course of its travel through the infinite space. In the morning, when it's born, it's considered a young child, right? Just, I mean, that's standard, typical stuff. We're born as young children, right? Then as we grow, as the sun rises up to get to the zenith of its power, probably us in our 30s, that's when we're at the zenith of our power. And then it doesn't stay there. It goes all the way down and sinks down into the west and dies. So it changes its form. This is the idea. That's what this panel is showing here. So... <clears throat> This is the morning sun rising from the underworld. And you can see it coming up on the horizon in the east because the night before, when you were looking directly in the other direction, you saw it disappear under in, in the underworld. You see it disappear. The light goes out. It dies in the west. And then it keeps swooshing underneath our feet all through the night for 12 hours, and then you see it being born on the horizon. That's the idea. So this represents the 10th Ba of Ammon, 
the last spirit, the Ba, the last Ba, which unites the earthly creatures. Now, this is interesting. What do we mean? Well, the snakes, the insects, and other crawling animals. Let me show you this. The snakes, the insects, the bovines, the quadrupeds, the plants, and the animals. That's on the hypocephali. So this is not only the cosmological cycle, this is the earth cycle of which we are a part of. The Egyptians knew that, all right? So now let's get back over to here to the Nekab cow. So during the ritual of the decade festival in the crypt of the edifice, Ammon unites with all 10 of his spirits. Now, Ammon has multiple spirits. He has 10 bars. It's called the decade festival, 10 bars. He's re the 10 spirits are scattered. They've died. They've gone in various spots and places in the cosmos. Apparently I'm not real familiar with this. I might be saying that part wrong, but then he reunites all the bars. That's what this is about. Among them, that last ba is represented by this figure, the Nekeb cow, the snake, the walking snake, the snake with legs. No, it's not perfect as far as anatomy. Don't worry about it. It's a symbol he's presenting with his arms, which snakes don't have, that wedge-out eye. So here, the finishing act of the ritual the presentation of the Wedjot Eye wakes Ammon up. It's not a death that the sun undergoes when it sets in the west. It's a sleep. So you have to wake him up after he rests for the, for the underworld journey. Death is called a sleep. How do you do that? You present him with the power to wake up. No, this is not a cup of coffee, but it should be. <laughs> Instead, this is the wedge on eye. <laughs> huh. Okay, so this is really kind of cool too. So now an awakened means to be reborn. That's the idea. He comes up from the shade of the underworld crypt, and by coming up to the cult statue at the surface, the sun also comes symbolically out to light. So in the funerary context of this scene on Register 3, the god and the, the god, this guy here, the god sitting on his throne, usually Min, the regenerating god, and the Nekeb cow who's presenting the Wedjad Eye, uh, they represent the power which is necessary for the rebirth, not of the sun god, but of those who are deceased, us. So this panel is all about the deceased's ability to get into the cycle that is eternal. In other words, to be revivified from a temporal status here on this planet on earth as humans what we have to do is what the egyptians wanted us to do what they wanted to do is tap into that eternal cycle of the sun which they witnessed all throughout life every single day because the sun dies and is resurrected then the next day the, oh the sun's resurrected 
oh, way over there, it dies again. And it gives us light while it's alive. So light is life. It gives us warmth, which keeps us alive. It grows our food. It makes the animals flourish, etc. It keeps water liquid, so on and so forth. But this happens hundreds of millions of times through all time. So there's the eternity taking place with the Egyptians within the realm of time because we see our loved ones who are born then they die. Then they're born and they die. Sometimes they die by accidents. Sometimes they die by old age. But eventually it dawns on us, oh man, I'm in that death realm. I'm in the mortal realm, but I want to get in that eternal realm with the sun god. That's what this hypocephalus is talking about. And it's just so absolutely fascinating to see how that works. So, oh, let's see. I've just about given the whole shot away. Oh, and well, this cow is identified. It's, it's a pretty important identification with Hathor. Hathor is called the wedge-ot eye. Uh, and basically, you know, you see the sun disk. Don't look at the sun for very long, though. It can really... It can harm you. That's the power of the God. Don't sass the God. Uh, if you think you can do a staring contest with the sun God, you're doomed, right? But this idea is that this, see that see that sun disc with the high feathers on her head on that uppermost panel? That's a really important one because she is the wedge-out eye. She is also considered the eye of Ray, the eye of the sun god. And when he opens it, the sun shines. And when he closes it, he goes to sleep in the west and he dies, he goes through the under. You see how all the symbolism works together. Yes. And T.O., hey, welcome, T.O., my good friend. Eye of Horus. Yeah, he's talking about the eye. Oh, Debbie Donovan. Good to see you here, too. So, so this idea is Hathor is the ivory. She's the heavenly cow. Uh, about the destruction of humanity. There's a text that talks about the destruction of humanity. From the point of view of the hypocephali, Klotz wrote about the role of the goddess of the solar eye. This makes Ammon Ray's light power manifest in the physical world. And that's what you see with the sunshine. Today, Easter Day, here where I live, it's absolutely gorgeous. It was beautiful and sunny and warm. Very, very delightful. Uh, Easter day for us. In Dendera, it is Hathor who clothes her Lord with her light. So does she hide him inside her iris. And there's a whole theology about the wedge-out eye and the iris, the different parts of the eye being fractions and so on and so forth. So now the point is the cycle is complete. Uh, the cow goddess who is the mother of Ray. See, here we go again. She's the mother of the God. She appears as his protector in this life as well as in his death. We read in Book of the Dead 162 that the heavenly cow placed a papyrus inscribed with the chapter under the head of her son, Ray, when he set in the West. And the whole hypocephalus itself is disc-shaped. This is identical with or replaces the amulet papyrus prescribed by the heavenly cow. And that's the one she wears around her neck. She has a circular disc that is a hypocephalus that she puts under the head of her son, Ray, when he sets in the West, that it will give 
him heat and light in the underworld so that he can come back up and be reborn bright and young in the East. But if we can tap into that cycle, that's also our destination. And this is where the Egyptians had this theology, this ideology of great hope. So, see, the head of the deceased lies in the middle of the iris, hypocephalus, and it's identical with the sun disk itself, which is closed with the light of Hathor. And in the fourth register, let's see, slide 11. Oh, my gosh, I'm only on 8, 9, 10, 11. Okay, now here. Oh, I've got slide 11 here. Oh, yes, because he further he furthers his information. Oh, this is good. He's going to expand the theology here now. And this is kind of cool. I love this. So uh, in this fourth register here, and we're back here at Nekeb Cow, given the wedge out eye. Now, wait. Slide 11. Slide 11. Oh, that's the Hathor cow, the wedge out eye. I should have done that. Did I? Oh, my gosh. I meant slide 13. Sorry. Okay, so, all right. Yeah, take a good look. There's mom, and she is beautiful. She does a fantastic work. We should always love our mothers. That's part of the Easter message. Now, uh, okay, so this panel that I just went through is the panel the horizontal bar across this one that's highlighted yellow right now. The one that I highlighted yellow, I've expanded and enlarged down below the hypocephalus. So look below this round cushion. That's the subject. That's the symbolism that we're going to talk about now. And this is interesting because we see two different boats here. Uh, the one on the left looks like it's the bigger one. It's got more people in it. The one on the right looks smaller, and it doesn't actually have people. It has baboons. So, uh, what? and then there's some kind of a, a shrine uh, in between them. So what are we to make of this? Uh, the one boat, the moon boat over there on the right does not have a helmsman at the rudder. The one on the left does. So what's going on here? The bark on the left, the long one, the big one, the one with the most people in it, that's called the sun bark. The other bark on the right with the two baboons, that's called the moon bark. You get it? The sun, the day, the moon, the night. See, yeah, it's cosmological, but the Egyptians didn't overlook anything. They included all of the symbolism in such fantastically interesting ways here. The sun bark has six voyagers. The sun god with the ram's head stands in the middle of the bark in a shrine. And you can see that. There it is. And the crew depicted on both sides, Horus stands in the bow of the bark and see the guy right up front and he is spearing the Apophis snake with his harpoon. That's the boat on the left there, the one right next to that square box looking thing. 
That's Horus spearing the snake. In the cut water, the young sun god, in the form of the child, sits on a mat. There it is. The next element is the lunar bark with the two apes. One sits in the middle of the nous, that's that rectangular thing that's surrounding him, while the other one offers him a wedge-out eye. Look at everything, everybody's offering everybody wedge-out eyes. That's pretty darn important, you know. Uh, so the interpretation of Screber by reading this scene is the manifestation of the Sensen Ka wedge ritual. I have no idea what that means. Let's keep looking. Oh, well, <laughs> to interpret it, all you have to do is keep reading the Egyptologists, right, Kerry? So this is the encounter of the sun and the moon in the underworld. Remember, right now, this hypocephalus, we've turned it upside down. We've turned it right side up. The other direction means this is in the underworld. So these are the underworld boats, the boats that are now at the bottom. And the reason we know this is upside down, just so that we can see the figure clearer, right? I think I did that, is because that middle figure right there, smack dab in the middle of the circle, he's upside down. That's the four-headed ram, Ammon. He's supposed to be right side up with the sun disc on his head because he represents the sun at his zenith also in the midday. So I just turned this upside down so that we can see the symbolism, so that we can understand that the one boat is the sun boat and the other boat is the moon boat, and the two bark wedge-out eyes are manifestations of Ammon Ray. This is the great important passage in the great Ammon hymn. The key is in the interpretation of the sedge-ah, and this means both to see and to conceal at the same time. So the translation of the passage can be done two ways, and it's a word play here that we're dealing with, the dual nature of the god Ammon-Ray, who lets himself see through his eyes and who hides himself with his mysterious ock eyes, A-K-H, ock eyes. We do not forget that we are faced again with two more spirits, Boz, spirits, Boz, of Ammon, the sun and the moon. Get this, the, the spirit of the god is symbolized, his Ba is symbolized by these two ships and their inhabitants. You see how this is starting to work here? That is really interesting. The first two Boz are from the mysterious ten Boz, and the first two bars express a time aspect by the continuous changing of day and night. Now, it's at this point that I want to bring in uh, Robert Rittner. So we have the sun bark and the moon bark, which are the spirits, two of the spirits of Ammon Ray, uh, the Ba, he has 10 of them, right? Notice he's bringing in the cosmological aspects with the sun and the moon. What, what Ammon Ray is doing in this hypocephalus is he's bringing everything 
together that is opposite. That's why the upside down portions and the right side up portions are all together within the circle and the circular inscription, which I'm just about to get to, will give us the full universal cosmos as one. What we're seeing in the center of the eye, the hypocephalus, with all of these different symbols and animals and different kinds of deities and the different kinds of hieroglyphic writing is the many. And the rim, the circle, is going to unite the opposites into one. And that's what the Egyptologists are saying. And I'll read that here just shortly. No joke. I'm going to be reading from... Uh, Luca Miatello here just shortly. So Robert Rittner in the German of Egyptian Archaeology really did a terrific article called Anubis and the Lunar Disk. And I'm only going to just touch on a couple of, of items here. I'm just going to skim this real quick just to give you the bare essence of it. Uh, he gives a lot of wonderful historical detail that I don't have to go into. Okay, so the speech of Anubis with his disc. They have found Anubis with the disc. And he goes, so, yeah, well, that's what the Egyptologists are trying to figure out. Wait a minute. Anubis is a, uh, he's a mummification deity. Uh, he's a, he's a, a funeral deity. What's he doing with the moon? He's not technically a cosmic deity out there. So why is he associated with the moon, right? So here's his speech to the moon. He says, I have come before the Lord of the gods to see the son whom he loves. I have formed his limbs in life and stability. They are rejuvenated like the moon in the month. Remember the four sons of Horus. Two represent the two legs and two represent the two arms, right? Well, now here he says, I formed his limbs in life and stability. They're rejuvenated like the moon in the month. And the gift of Anubis to the child, remember the newborn son in the east was, was signified as a child. That's why the Kepri beetle is so important because the son changed his form into a child to be reborn from the underworld with the help of the heavenly cow, right? So this child is symbolized by the disk of the full moon with its pattern of cyclical rebirth. So this is really kind of cool. Now, the appearance of a funerary deity in a birth relief is what surprises people, right? When we look at the Dendera inscriptions quoted above, they show that it is in his capacity as a guarantor, a grantor of rebirth, as the god of mummification, is why Anubis is present. That's his role, right? The jackal-headed deity. So like the lunar disk, and this is what Anubis has been found to keep company with, so like the disc, Anubis embodies the Egyptian concept of the transition from death to life. Uh, this is cool. While it is the primary function, here, let me, let me put this up. Here's a picture of Anubis with the moon disc, right? 
So this idea of the transition, but it's the primary function of Anubis. What he does is he reforms and he regenerates the limbs of the dead through mummification. This is Anubis's basic function here. And he's all over in Egyptian art showing, dealing with the mummies and the people on the lion couch. But this is the mummification. However, with the moon's association, and here he is with moon disks again, you can see in this one, he's the one on the right, he's presenting the moon disk to Osiris. Uh, very interesting. And Isis, the great mother, and it looks like the child uh, suckling her breast. <laughs> Look at that. Some pious person scratched it out. Idiots. Ruin the symbolism because you're prudish. That's silly. Anyway, uh, so this is Anubis presenting the moon disk to Osiris. And, uh, and that's the identification. The moon is identified with Osiris as well. So the funerary texts of the period reflect the equation of the moon now with rebirth. Now, that doesn't contradict the fact that the sun is also a symbol of the rebirth with its cycle because the moon also has its own cycle. It'll disappear for, to the new moon phase, and then it takes 28 days to go completely through its cycle of rebirth and death every month while the solar cycle is daily. But there's also an annual solar cycle that the Egyptians well knew about that we know that causes the different seasons also. The sun also sinks way down in the south, dies in the south, and then comes back up to full power in the north. So it's all four directions that it's involved in, just like the moon in its various phases. So this is remarkably interesting. The dead wish for repeating of births like the moon. Notice the moon is being presented to Osiris and Isis with the babe at her breast. Notice her crown. That's the way over on the far right the Hathor crown with the sun disc in between it. Yeah, that's right. And now he's bringing the moon disc to it. And that newborn child is the sun as it just rose. It's in the East. That, that is so fantastically interesting as a symbolism. So the dead wish for repeated births. They must be rejuvenated like the moon. And the first unambiguous declaration of Osiris as the moon is in the stela of Ramses IV dedicated to the god. Oh, that's the, uh, that's another one. You are the moon in the sky. Now here he's rolling the moon disc. Again, this is symbolic, right? So keep it simple. So here he's presenting the disc. Uh, you are the moon in the sky. You rejuvenate yourself according to your desire and you become old when you wish. Well, what happens if you wish that you never got old? Well, you become deity and you're in the eternal cycle. So... There you have it, right? Kind of interesting how they think through these things. The funerary wishes of the New Kingdom strongly recall the Dendera texts detailing the gift of Anubis to the divine child. That's what we're seeing on that 
right figure there. Indeed, if the lunar disk in these reliefs is equated with the body of Osiris, now get this, the, the ball he's handing is the body of Osiris. Well, what does that mean? All right, well, once we know that's Osiris, representation, representation of Osiris, now Anubis's role becomes self-evident. The god does not roll the disc, as has been previously suggested, but he bends over the moon. Notice he's bending over the moon here, which is Osiris, exactly as he's bending over Osiris on the lion couch as the deceased but as the moon, he's come back to full life. I think that's fascinating, isn't it? It's really kind of fun. It's not a matter about whether it's true or false. We're learning another cultural icon that gives us a better appreciation and impetus to appreciate Easter more, right? That's the whole idea. So, and then to wrap this up on Rittner, because I've got someone else I got to get to real quick. So when we accept the lunar Osiris identification for the disk, this is for the disk. Okay, it's both the, the, the moon and Osiris and these birth scenes, but also the two additional categories are explained. The first of this appears sporadically in the Roman era, painted canvas. Oh, it's a figure of Anubis who elevates a disk above his head. Well, that's basically the one on the right there. Okay. This depiction seems the counterpart of that found in the birth reliefs, whereas the birth reliefs portray the operation of embalming the body by the moon, Osiris, by Anubis. The examples from the mummy wrappings stress the moment of resurrection. Well, here's Robert Rittner using the word resurrection. So I know Thomas Meckes told Noel, no, we don't discuss resurrection, but Robert Rittner is. So Anubis raises the now mummified and reborn lunar Osiris into the heavens. Now, remember, getting into the cycle of Ray the sun, we also get into the cycle of the moon with Osiris. We become an Osiris so that we too are lifted up into the heavenly cycle into the eternities. We can't do it on our own. It takes some outside help. The position of the representation beneath the feet is significant because the virtue of the identification of the deceased with Osiris, Anubis elevates not only the disc, that's not just the disc, and it's not just Osiris, but it's also elevating the mummy and the deceased. That's very interesting. So, Far from being obscure, this relationship of Anubis to his disc, whether in birth or in the funerary scenes, see, you would think that's contradictory because they're two opposite complete ideas. If you're thinking linearly, but to the Egyptians, they had that cyclical time, that cyclical eternity because of how they interpreted what they saw with the sun and the moon, right? So that's how we understand this and all of their fantastic symbolisms to try to describe what they interpreted. So the disc is identified with the moon and Osiris. 
So the imagery recalls the role of Anubis as the agent of resurrection and as the guarantor of a repetition of births like Osiris the moon. Very fun stuff there from oh, a very excellent Egyptologist, Robert Rittner. So that's basically what I wanted to get off my chest with Robert Rittner. Have I bored y'all to death yet? I probably have. Uh, I apologize if I have, but tough luck. Get over it. <laughs> Looks like all of you are still here and you're looking like you're having fun. Okay. Okay. Uh, let's see. I, I pretty much basically told you everything. There's not a whole lot left to 276, 277. Yeah. Oh, and that... Okay, just one more item. I've got to get to this. The rim inscriptions. Okay, here we go. Hold on. You don't want to see my funny looking face tonight anyway. Okay, yeah. The, oh, okay, hold on. Now this, this is really interesting here though. I want to, I want to reemphasize this. Um, on that on, on that boat on the left, the guy right up front with the harpoon, that's Horus. And he's slaying the Apophis snake there, right? So this alludes to two crucial moments, the killing of the Apophis snake and the restitution of the lunar eye. Now, we just talked about that, the lunar disc and Osiris and all that with Rittner, right? They're elements of securing of the protection of the bark wedgeot eyes. For the right eye, it is, or for the right boat, it is the killing of the greatest enemy of the sun god. For the left one, it is the restoration and further protection of the eye by Shu Thoth Onurus. So all this expresses the restitution of Ma'at. That's justice, truth, uh, peace, as it were, right? The importance of securing the two eyes is the function of the hypocephalus. The head is a, the head of the person with the hypocephalus put underneath the head in the coffin. The dead is assimilated to the sun because of the hypocephalus. The hypocephalus provides not only warmth for the body, and that's a basic characteristic that we've heard about the hypocephalus, right? Oh, well, it keeps the body warm. It does more than that because the deceased goes into the underworld and it's black. He has no eyes. So the wedjot eye, the eye of Ray, which is underneath his head, is his flashlight, so to speak. It provides light in the underworld so that while he's moving around, he doesn't get lost. Kind of interesting. So, uh, yeah, now, now on the rim, I'm just going to get to this. I'm just going to get to this. On the rim of this hypocephalus here. Here's what it says. O enveloped one in the temple of Ben-Ben, high one, two times, high one, high one, glorious one, glorious one, the falcon of order. 
the sacred copulator in the sacred hall, apparent his walking, it is known his walking, superior is his walking, who brings his peace, who walks without settling down, who plays Sistrum without to be weary of it. He rises for million times routinely. In other words, he's gotten into the solar cycle. Not known, his image, he's hidden. Be given that flame, come into being under the head of the God's father, the prophet of Ammon in Karnak, Payuhor, true of voice. May you allow, now this is the text in the inner field uh, in one of the sections right next to him. May you allow that flame may come into being under the head of Payuhor, true of voice. Whew. So that's Thomas Meccas. Let me just wrap up real quick. I, I have a whole bunch more I want to get to. It's okay. I'll be able to do a part two. Uh, the, I mean, it has to do with Easter, but it won't have to be an Easter uh, message. This is from uh, a very, very good Egyptologist, Luca Miatello. I think uh, Miatello and Meccas are colleagues. I do want to say, I've been reading from Meccas. Uh, from a paper of his, and I have read his fantastic book, uh, absolutely essentially wonderful book, The Hypocephalus, an Ancient Egyptian Funerary Amulet by Thomas Meccas. Uh, it's got, it's the Archaeology Press Egyptology. It's a fantastic book, full color, full color pictures, black and white pictures, the whole nine yards. Uh, a complete uh, collection of various hypocephali, which I am exploring right now. It's absolutely delightful beyond belief. If you like this kind of stuff, if you don't, this book's not for you. I feel sorry for you. You're going to miss out. But uh, I will bring out lots more out of Thomas Meccas uh, next time in part two, because he is so fabulous. In the meantime, Luca... Miatello. Now, he wrote uh, an article dealing with problematic texts, a synoptic study of the Hypocephalus Turin, catalog number 2320. Uh, and this was in 2019, just recently that he wrote this also. And I have a note here. Turn on slides. Oh, no, no, no. I wanted to. I apologize. I read that I read that outer rim inscription. Let me go to this next outer rim inscription. Now, this uh, the one on the left is the Joseph Smith hypocephalus, where you don't see any. See all those hieroglyphs on the outside of the rim there? Uh, those are the legitimate Egyptian hieroglyphs. Uh, the right side of it up there on the upper corner all the way going down, that was all blank. And Joseph Smith stupidly grabbed some of the hieratic. Interestingly enough, though, from the papyri fragment that he translated the book of Abraham from, Joseph Smith, Papyri 11, he grabbed the hieratic hieroglyphs and stuck it in the rim, which has nothing to do with a hypocephalus. And that's caused lots of confusion. 
But uh, the rim that we do have, the part of the rim that we do have, let me see if I can read this. I'm going to have to get real close. Sorry. You're going to have to see my ugly mug. Oh, hey, I can do it this way. I can do the big stuff. Here we go. Okay. This is the rim of the Joseph Smith, and it starts up at the top. Uh, and it says, I am the provider in the sun temple in Heliopolis. I am most exalted and very glorious. I am a virile bull without equal. I am that mighty God in the sun temple in Heliopolis. May the Osiris Shishak live forever with that mighty God in Heliopolis. And, and that's actually the, that's the missing part of the text of the rim, but we can fill it in with other hypocephali. And then I've got a, I've got this example from Thebes, this other one on the right here. This is the Henry Muir. Uh, it refers principally to the types of Ammon. Ray, he says, it reads, I am Ammon who is in the secret place. That is the underworld. And it is a secret place because you and I don't get to see it while we're alive, right? So makes sense. I am the accomplished spirit of the even of the sun, going in and coming forth from the accomplished multitudes. I am the great soul whose form is clear. I am coming out of the abyss at will. I've come. I proceed from the eye. I come forth from the abyss of Hades with the sun from the great house of chief of a chief in Heliopolis. I'm the spirit coming from the abyss of Hades, placing things for his body, going from heaven and the sun to the hidden soul of the many. I proceed from the eye. Now that is really intriguing, right? Kind of interesting. Let's see what else we got. Okay, here's another one from the British Museum, 8445. The inscription reads, I am the spirit going along. I am Ammon who is in the secret place. The sarcophagus is one interpretation. I'm the great one in Hades. I am the one who comes forth from the eye. I am the one in its pupil. I've come from the place of the great one in Heliopolis. I've come from the place of eternity. There is no name of the person for whom made, but it is about the same period. Oh, that's Birch's comment. There is no name of the person for whom this was made, but it's from the same period. And then over here on the right, uh, what they did is uh, Michael Dennis Rhodes did this comparison, and I just noted it for the wedge out eye symbolism. On the side, uh, I think it's the legitimate hieroglyphics, in the uh, writing, in the Joseph Smith, it says, that's the bottom one over on the right. Oh God, the sleeping ones, that is the dead, from the first time creative, oh mighty God, Lord of heaven and earth, the netherworld, and his great waters. In other words, the primeval ocean. That's, what, that's the universe. Grant that the soul of Osiris Shishonk may live. And then on this Samuel Birch one, this is the British Museum. Oh, it's this 1845, that we just read the rim of, O great soul producing the transformations of the flames and transformations of the two symbolic eyes, the God, the King, the ruler. So the idea here is what I want to get across is, oh, here's one more. Let's look at one more. 
The inscription around the rim reads, I am the spirit going along. See, he's the Ba, he's the spirit. I am Ammon, who is in the secret place. I am the great one in Hades. I am the one who comes forth from the eye. I am the one in his people. See, it's pretty much like the other one. Oh, it is. This is the same one. <laughs> no wonder it sounds like, all right, well, that's enough of that noise. You dork. Okay, so let's get on with the... Uh, Oh, boy, I'm about out of time, aren't I? You guys are wanting to go for Easter dinner. I'm keeping you too long. I apologize. Let me just quickly go through uh, Miatello because he's so very interesting and important. Now, this is a typical hypocephalus layout that you see on the left here. Uh, you've got the... Uh, well, and he just says one, two, three, four, five. He numbers it from the bottom. And again, the uh, it splits in the middle. The lower half's upside down. The upper half is right side up. He's basically got the symbols, the iconography is what they call it. He's got the symbols usually where they are, and then he's expressed where text goes in, and this is classic hypocephalus. Of course, it's not dogmatic. It's not canon, but but uh, this is basically some of the idea here. Now, here's what he says. A text. Now, this is the text around the rim, and I wanted to share this with you right off because of what Miatello says right off. Now, see, in the text of this particular one he's studying, it says, I am the Ock. And like I told you earlier, you know, Ba, Ka, Ock. Let's not get too fussy about all that stuff. Let's just keep it simple. So I am the spirit. I am the Ock in the one who descends. My youngster, that is my rejuvenated corpse, who fears protections. I am the hidden one who is in your tomb and in your chamber. I am non-existent for you with your hand the comer from the tears for what is in my mound of commoners. I agree indeed. I enter into the Wajadai. I go forth and I ferry across around it, around me. My God is like Perashal. And then another one says, I am the Ock descending. I am Ammon who is in the tomb. I am the noble in the netherworld. I come forth from the Wedjot Eye. I am the one in its iris. I've come from the temple of the great noble in Heliopolis. I am the one who emerges from the netherworld for the eternity. So he has gotten into the cycle. That's what this rim is saying, right? So here's the idea. A text written in a loop suggests its eternal recitation as eternal as the circuit of the sun. And that's Miatello. Now that makes good sense. That is what the theme, that's what the idea of those circular inscriptions show us. That's the symbolism. It's wonderful. And it ties everything in that's within it from an outside infinity. The circle encloses a part of the finite, the mortal. But we want to get into the infinity. Therefore, we've got to get into the eternal circuit, which is symbolized by the cosmological sun and the moon, which are symbols and yet 
they are actually real also. That's kind of interesting how that works. Huh? So anyway, so that's what he's getting at here with this. Um, and so the netherworld represented by the reverse registers, the ones that are upside down here. I don't know if you can see my, uh, I don't know if you can see my mouse uh, button or not, but the ones underneath here are upside down. The ones on top are right side up. Uh, now the five registers represent cosmographic regions and divine forms associate to the solar cycle. Every one of the symbolism, every single one of the symbols in a hypocephalus has to do with the solar cycle. We're talking about the sun because that's the most powerful thing in our lives. That's right, Mormons. It's not prayer. It's the sun. <laughs> that's the most powerful, you know. Hate to break it to you. So the five reg. Oh, I just said that. So now region one, this region right at the very bottom where he has text written upside down in that region is the hidden netherworld. This is where Ray regenerates the corpse of Osiris in the Amduat at the sixth hour of the night. That is halfway through the night. You're done descending, see, from that middle line between three and four. The middle line where the text goes upside down and right side up is split. Notice how far down you go, all the way down to six o'clock on a clock. At that point, you're halfway through the night, but you are fully descended as low as you can go. That's the idea. That's why the symbolism is Ray regenerates the corpse at the sixth hour of the night. So we have tomb. We have the idea of the protection of the deceased. We have the theme of the generation of the vital flame of spell 162 of the Book of the Dead. The region two, the one right up above it, which we have talked about extensively tonight, these are the deities of the netherworld from Nekeb Kau in the west all the way over to that little Kepri beetle in the east and the Ikat Kau in the middle. In region three, the night bark of the sun god encounters the moon bark, Thoth, at dawn. Now, you see, we're coming up closer to the middle, and the barks are meeting each other. It's dawn. It's no longer darkest night. The ascension has begun. The goddess Nut is giving birth to Capri at one end. That's wonderful. Giving birth. That is, the sun is rising. On number two to three, or, or I mean number three to four there. That's where the sun rises. The fourth region, now the, now the circle is right side up. The text, there's text on both sides of those two monkeys in that four-headed four ram figure here, region four. This region represents the solar rebirth in the Akat. The four-headed ram is that symbol. In region five, all the way up above it, on the top of the circle, is the day sky. And what we have here is the 
bark of Kepri and the Ba of Ray in the eastern side of the sky. And then over on the other side, the falcon with the spread wings on the other side, the Ba spirit of the west. Ammon Ray is double faced in the center. So the text of the rim with the photo, the central theme around the rim is the powerful nature of the auk. That is the nature, the power of the spirit, the luminescent transcendent spirit. That is what the rim here is talking about. So the rejuvenation of the corpse is the thing. The rejuvenation of the deceased, like the sun god, involved both its immaterial components, and its corpse. So with the various hypocephali, as we study the rims and the texts around the rims, the ock comes forth from, and he enters into the Wedjot eye. And this is the powerful substance of Ammon as a transcendent spirit that is opposed to the corpse, so, therefore, its union with the deceased has to have a medium between it, and that's the sun disk. That's the hypocephalus under the head. The corpse is dead. The transcendent, powerful spirit is still alive, but they need each other. This is the wedjot eye, the sun disk, the hypocephalus itself or the mummy mask, which is the face of the child. Remember, the son is being reborn. That's the theme, the rejuvenation. After the union of the ark with the son, the deceased is paralleled to the god. There we go. That's It's through this hypocephalus, through this Wajadai amulet, that he gets the power to get into the eternal cycle of the sun. That's what it's all about. So, and then one more slide. Let's take a look at this one. I am the ark descending in another world, giving things to his body. Now, remember, this is the spirit. He's going to go to another world, but he's giving things to the body. May you grant the sky to the spirit, the ba, and the tomb to the mummy. I come forth from the Wedjadai. I am Ammon, who's in the tomb. I am the excellent sunshine from the crew of Ray. See, he's entered into the sun boat. Uh, Ray, the sun, is... Uh, symbolized with the boat, like we saw the sun boat and the moon boat in the hypocephalus. I enter and come forth among the excellent ones. I am the great Ba whose form is glass. I come forth from the netherworld according as he desires. I have come and I come forth from the Wedjadai. I am the one coming forth from the netherworld together with Ray in the temple of the great noble. He's made it. He's there. He's on his ascension. This is really cool. The Ba is the creative force. It's the muscle begetting the form of the sun god. The two wedged eyes come into being and are made whole. So the whole idea, the general idea of all the texts in the hypocephalus now, the general theme here is coming into being. Oh, it contains references to the Ba of the sun god and images of solar rebirth, the four-headed ram god and baboons adoring him at dawn. So that's the early morning. 
the rebirth. Ammon is frequently associated with knowledge. He who makes known the Ba of joy, the spirit of joy, is the spirit-given solar rebirth. Now, when you see crouched lambs in the hypocephalus, usually above that bird with its wings extended up in the right corner, or the, I mean, the, uh, the upper left corner of the hypocephalus, near the falcon in the bark at the left side indicates the western sky. We saw that. The Bav Ammon is the, here's the key. When he said this, I just, I, my jaw dropped. I said, whoa, wait, that's big. The Ba, the spirit, the Ba of Ammon is the unity that creates the multiplicity. The Ba of Ammon transforms himself into the multiplicity of the tangible world. So in the Amarna great hymn, this is in the Amarna period, you create millions of forms, and that's what the Kepper beetle shows the creation of forms, the changing, the creation of forms. Well, he creates millions of them from yourself, the one. And what are these forms? Well, they're the cities, they're the fields, they're the towns, they're the paths, they're the river, etc. All of the forms of earth came from the body of the God himself. So while Aten creates the multiplicity, Ammon himself is the multiplicity. That's why he's invisible. Ammon can hide. He is among all the forms. The concept of multiplicity all around us is the hidden God Ammon who has the power of regeneration. That's fascinating. And this is symbolized by the many rams on the hypocephalus. That's fabulous. So the images of the hypocephalus and the texts in the hypocephalus are all a microcosm of the regions crossed by the sun in its daily circular path. That's the whole theme of the hypocephalus. The text around the rim are the Ak of Ammon, the Ak, A-K-H, the Ba, the spirit. The Ak, it's all spirit, but the Ak is a different kind of spirit than the Ba. Like I said, let's not get into it too much tonight. We're just going simple. So, but you need to understand that the Ak of Ammon descends into the netherworld. And he descends in the netherworld with the rejuvenated corpse of the deceased, me, you, the Ark of the God, comes with us, the deceased, solving its opposite nature of powerful transcendent spirit by entering into the Wedjadai. So the various registers of texts in the hypocephali concern the stability of the paths that need to be taken, and they have various images of solar rebirth. The Ba, the spirit of the sun god, is a creative force that brings joy, and it's represented by the four-headed ram in the hypocephalus. It's worshipped by the baboons. The unified Ba of joy is glorified in the day sky.
That's why the upper register is right side up on the upper circle of the hypocephali. The Ba of the sun god is knowledge, according to the texts. This knowledge creates material substance as well as the multiplicity of the universe. All of the chemical elements, all of the physical nature, physical properties of water, wood, concrete, stone, steel, diamond, lithium, on and on and on. The interesting religious and philosophical concepts are expressed in the uppermost part of the hypocephalus. Multiple rams are hypostases of the Ba of the sun god and his knowledge to the benefit of the dead person. It is through the knowledge that the dead person gets help into the eternities to live forever. The concept that the Ba of Ammon that becomes the multiplicity of the universe was developed by the Theban clergy of the Ramesid period. Now that is 1300 BC to 1000 BC. So this philosophy is just prior to the reign of King David in the Old Testament. The idea that the universe was developed from the Ba of Ammon, occurred in Egypt just before King David became king. So, and this is from the solar religion of Amarna. Uh, centuries later, the themes of logos and soul and matter constitute the basis of Plotinus' idea of henosis. So that's how early, that's how well developed uh, the ideology and the theology and all that jazz of the Egyptians got. So anyway, now that I've bored you to complete tears, I apologize. But the happy Easter message now, of course, uh, David Feidler, Jesus Christ, son of God, that's S-U-N. You saw that right. The theme of the classical tradition of the cosmology and the early Christian cosmology of the importance of uh, the sacred geometry and how the, the physics of the ancient Egyptians with the Greeks, although they had passed by and then came into the early Christian. I don't have time to go through this. I'm so sorry. Uh, and I was going to also discuss uh, M. David Litwa, Jesus Deus, the early Christian depictions of Jesus as a Mediterranean God. I can do this again. I'll bring these in into part two. And then, uh, and then Jeremy Mailer, the shamanic wisdom in the pyramid texts, the mystical tradition of ancient Egypt. Fantastic book. This, this book just blows my mind. I had a bunch of stuff on. Oh, I had a bunch of stuff. Oh, well, right here. Here we go. Page 46. Sorry, I got to keep going. Uh, according to this particular scholar, uh, the journey through the body of the sky goddess nut. Now, we just talked about that. That's the cow, right? Ray is, goes through the body of the cow. She, she represents the eternity, the universe itself, right? She's the life giver. 
not the God. That's critical. That is in all of the ancient traditions. Yeah, the patriarchy today thinks it's the thing in charge. Anyway, let's not get into politics. I get in trouble every time I do. The text describes the mysteries of return to primal origins and cosmic rebirth. There it is again, Jeremy Nadler, shamanic wisdom. And these are in the pyramid text. Now, what I've been talking about uh, with the hypocephalus, the dating of the hypocephalus is like four, maybe 600 BC at the earliest, 400 BC to about 100 BC to about the time Jesus was born. There was just a real short period when hypocephali themselves were really popular in the early Ptolemaic times. That is just after Alexander the Great conquered the world and then he died and then the world was split up into three kingdoms. The Ptolemaic times is when the hypocephalus began uh, being created for the mummies in the coffins, right? But this idea is the idea of rebirth. It was deeply important for living Egyptians, giving them the power to experience consciously the process of death and rebirth during their lifetime on earth. They wanted to know how to get into the circuit of the sun, not after we die, but isn't there a way we can do it now? And that was the idea in the pyramid texts. And they're earlier than the Book of the Dead. This goes way back, thousands of years earlier in the pyramids. It was the text written on the pyramids instead of the coffins, right? So they were essentially mystical texts, often grounded in ritual practices for use for the living, not just the dead. The transformation texts, these should be viewed as meditations for the purpose of acquiring spiritual powers, whatever that means, in a manner akin to the Indian concept of samadhi in various yoga sutras. So, Federn, Walter Federn, and I've got his article. It's good. Uh, he argues for the existence of initiation rites in ancient Egypt comparable to those that we found and find in shamanism, ancient shamanism, involving the experience of death, dismemberment, and rebirth. And isn't that what I just, that's what I've been talking about now for almost two hours. Oh, I'm actually over two hours. For two hours, using the hypocephalus as the symbolism. And don't forget that this same, you can't make this stuff up. This same cosmological cycle, you guys, is also in the Navajo the Native American religious ceremonies with their sand paintings. And I want to do a big deal on that. I, I just can't find the time. Uh, the Navajo, great spiritual materials with their sand paintings and philo philosophical and ideological ideas that death isn't it. There is life after death and there is a reason to have hope. Isn't that the Easter message. It's been that message in the pyramid texts for millennia. It's been that message in the coffin text. It's been that message in the Greeks. There, See, this is my whole idea. This is what turns me on to studying the mysteries. You got the Eleusinian mysteries. What about the Mithraic mysteries, right? What was their whole point? Get in touch with the sun god. 
That was the whole point of the Mithras liturgy in the Egyptian magical papyri. And I did a huge lecture on that a year and a half ago or so with my friend Trevor Luke and, and uh, a group of fellow seekers. So anyway, man, there's just so much to go on. But I do have to quit. I thank you. I appreciate all your efforts. I appreciate your love and support. Really, you guys are the best. It's, it's a lot of fun for me. I hope I can make it informative and fun for you. I try to give you information that every other channel is not giving you because technically I am the backyard professor, which means nothing except I'm an idiot who rummages through books and finds cool stuff to share. <laughs> and I love doing it. And I appreciate all your guys' support, your help, your love, your uh, your interest. Uh, if you would, please subscribe. Go tell your friends to come on in and subscribe. Hit the like button. Uh, help keep me going here. This is a lot of fun. I enjoy this beyond anything I've ever done. I have been studying all day today since 5 o'clock this morning. And it's been an absolute delight. And I'm still not done. I, I have so much more I could do. I could go on for another eight hours nonstop. So, but I won't. I, it is Easter night. And thank you for spending a couple hours with me. So, okay, you guys, I love y'all. You're awesome. Remember this. It's a very important one from the uh, ancient East, Far East. Yeah. Recognize the divinity within. That's very important. Isn't that what I've been talking about? The Ak, the Ak, the Aku, the Ba of Osiris, which is the Ba of the deceased, so that we can all, yeah, yeah, shut up, Carrie. You said that 20 times. <laughs> I'm telling you, there's, there's a tie-in worldwide anciently. So I will share more of the ancient mysteries with you as we go along. And I appreciate y'all. I got to go. I've been saying goodbye now for half an hour. Everyone's starting to laugh at me. And that's good because I like to make people laugh anyway. So I am I am heading out for real. Uh, thank you all for coming in. And I will see you next time soon. I've got some great, great stuff coming up. I, I am sincerely serious. I have some fantastic scholars and scholarship uh, just right around the corner. So I'm excited. I'll see you next time. <laughs>